This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. All right. Welcome, everyone. Welcome, all our Torah Anytime viewers. So, tonight we are learning Leilunishmat Avram ben Chaim Yehuda and Yechaskel ben Avraham, as well as Leilunishmat Avram Gershon ben Elimelech Gavriel. So, as we continue, this is the third series, the third part in the series of Perke Avos. And, you know, sometimes I'm not fully sure on how the Sphira is, uh, how, how the, I'm thinking about Sphira, how the series is going to go. But one of the things that I, that whenever I go through a safer, whenever I go through a, uh, a particular series, I like to take a particular topic um, and just delve into it. So the way that we're going to be going in Meretz Hashem with the um, Perke Elvos uh, series is it's going to be kind of, even though this is the third class, I really should have probably said this in the first class, this is going to be kind of a standalone classes that you could listen. Most of the classes will probably be okay if you listen to it uh, by itself. Uh, because the way that I'm going to do it is I'm just going to use the topic as a as an origin, and then we're gonna branch out and and discuss in that topic. So we'll be able to discuss many topics within this uh, series in Merit Hashem. So stay tuned because at first I wasn't sure if I was going to uh, you know how I was going to do it, if I was going to do it, if I was going to continue after Shavuos. But I actually do like the way that it's going. Um, I don't know if anybody else likes it, so I can't really uh, vouch for that. But I do like the way that it's going, so I do think that I'm going to continue with it. And we're going to utilize this to speak about to a, a whole slew of different topics. And some of the things we're going to go more Kabbalistic, some of the things are going to go more simple, some of the things are going to go more phys- uh, physiological or, or psychology. We're going to go through a bunch of different topics, um, you know, on it. So uh, just just like an, an FYI. Okay, so, so last time we, um, we, oh, so just to understand this, the way that, um, we're going to, you know, uh, at least notate this on the virtual world for the online people is that I will notate which Mishnah we're speaking out in Mir on the, on the end of the, of the topic of the, um, of the headline of the topic, but it's really gonna just branch off into anything and anything that's related to that, uh, to that topic. So, last week we spoke about that, the, the morality, uh, meaning that where does, uh, well, we technically spoke about relative moralism, where how things are moral all depends on your situation, meaning that in, in one lifespan or in one era, something is considered normal and moral and upright and righteous, while in another era, it's considered disgusting, depravity. It's considered the lowest of the law. And we gave many examples on that. And the, the ending result and what we spoke about was really the fact that everything that HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, everything that we learn in Perkei Elbos is really from, from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, meaning that there's nothing that changes. In morality, in the other parts of the world, in other religions and other cultures, it always changes based on the times, based on the the, uh, the ethics of the current situation of the world. But when we speak about Perkei Elbos, when we speak about morality in the in uh, and character building in uh, Perkei Elbos, this is not something that changing what was in Harsinai still stands today and will stand on when Mashiach comes. So this is something that's unchanging and this is something that's really timeless. And I can't 
emphasize how important this 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 series is because uh, the truth of the matter is is that one of the things the way that I wanted to you know, uh, do my series is I wanted to do after I do Emuna, I wanted to do Tefillah. I'm not finished preparing for Tefillah. So we're, and it happens to be we're in the era of Perke So I started with Perke but really I wanted to do Tefillah. Then I want, which is prayer. Then I wanted to do Perke And then I wanted to do character building, Midos, like character building. So we're going to be touching a lot about Midos now. So we kind of like swap things around from my original master plan, as we all know that you plan and Akadish Baruch laughs because like this Baruch makes the, the the real plan but that's really going to overlap with the Meretz Hashem series that I would like to do on character building like becoming better people so okay now that we got to uh the the introduction as as we come as we come closer to Shavuos we try to understand try to figure out what should we work on what Mida we should work on what character building should we we should work on so with that I want to start off with the first mission of Perkei Alves, with Moshe Kibbaltar Messinai now the question that he does ask and many people ask Moshe Kibbaltar Moshe received the Torah Misinai from Har Sinai. Now the famous question and the famous answer is that we know that Moshe didn't get the way that the translation of that is that Moshe got the Torah from Har Sinai. We know that Hashem that 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 Moshe didn't get Torah from Har Sinai. He got the Torah from you know he was on Har Sinai, but he got Torah from Hakadosh Baruch Hu, from God. So why does it, the why does it, the the Mishnah tell us that that Moshe got the Torah from Har Sinai? So the there is many lessons to be learned from here, but the main lesson and the most commonly used lesson is that uh, lesson of humility. And that is that there's an interesting medrash. And the medrash goes and says that God wanted to give the Torah. And he wanted to give the Torah on a mountain. So you had all the big mountains, the powerful mountains, the strong mountains, the highest mountains. They would come and be like, okay, you know, like, obviously the Torah, the most, the, the, the whole purpose of like creation, the reason of like the, how you're supposed to build yourself, like, like the purpose of like everything, right? That, you know, like it's gotta be big, right? It's got to be the production. It's got to be amazing. So everybody, all the big mountains came and said, you know, it's got to be, it's got to be me. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu went and HaKadosh Baruch Hu, God went and he took the smallest mountain, Harasinai, the tiny, the smallest mountain. And the Medrash goes on and says that HaKadosh Baruch Hu chastised. He gave Musa to the mountains for their haughtiness and their arrogance. You think you're so big, you think you're so strong. And in fact, God called them a blemish in a comparison to Harsinai because of the arrogance that they said, oh, you know what? Harsinai, the, the Torah should be given on, on me. And in fact, there is a Gemara in Sota, page 5a, that the, the Rav Ashi goes and says over there that we learn from this story that a arrogant person, a haughty person is, has a disqualifying blemish. I would like to share with you something from Yaakov Hillel that is something when I learned this, I was like, why didn't I think about this question beforehand? We know that when HaKadosh Baruch Hu went and he revealed himself to Moshe Rabbeinu at the Sna'at, the burning bush, uh, you know, Moshe Rabbeinu was, basically HaKadosh Baruch Hu told Moshe Rabbeinu, I want you to take the Jews out of Egypt. I want you to lead the Jewish people. I want you to take the Jewish people out, go into the desert, and you're going to go and receive the Torah. What was Moshe Rabbeinu's response? Moshe Rabbeinu refused it. He was like, me? Like, you know, like, why me? Like, if anything, it should be my brother Aaron. My brother Aaron has led the Jewish people for 80 years. He is more competent. He is a better orator. He didn't have a speech impediment like Moshe Rabbeinu had. Uh, Aaron was, you know, Moshe Rabbeinu says Aaron was more righteous. 
he argued, Moshe Rabbeinu argued with HaKadosh Baruch Hu for a full seven days. He argued with HaKadosh Baruch Hu until finally Moshe Rabbeinu submitted to the will of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And what was the reason of his argument? His, because Moshe Rabbeinu was incredibly to the highest level of humility that he had. He had, he like, like, what, what was the highest level of, of humility that any human reached. And in fact, the Torah itself, Attests to this. The Pasuk in Bamidbar, uh, in chapter 12, verse 3, it says, That Moshe Rabbeinu is the most humblest person on the entire face of the earth. And it's very interesting when you think about it. Moshe, a lot of the Torah, like the five, the Hamisha Hamishadara, the five books of Moses, they, it speaks about Moshe Rabbeinu, you know, majority of it. And we know a lot about Moshe Rabbeinu. We know that he was a Navi, he was a prophet, he was a leader, he was a general. He, in fact, when HaKadosh Baruch Hu wanted to destroy the Jewish people because of the sin of the, the, the Avera of the golden calf of the Egel, Moshe Rabbeinu stood up for them and he says, if you're gonna destroy them, rather, Mechinina Mesifracha, erase me from your, from your book. Meaning that Moshe asked that he, rather than the Jewish people, be eradicated. He was willing to sacrifice himself for the Jewish people. Not only that, not only that he was willing to sacrifice himself for the Jewish people, he was a prophet, he was extremely wise. He was the king of Ethiopia for 40 years. I don't know if most people know this. He was a king for 40 years. But the only praise that the Torah gives Moshe Rabbeinu was his humility. He was the most humble. It doesn't say that he was a great leader. It doesn't say that he was the smartest. It doesn't say that he was a general. It doesn't say that he was willing to give up every... The, the praise that, I, that the Torah gives Moshe Rabbeinu is his humility. That is his praise. So now the question, the amazing, beautiful question that Rabbi Yaakov Hillel asks is, wait a minute. If Moshe Rabbeinu was so humble, if Moshe Rabbeinu was always praised in humility, if Moshe Rabbeinu was willing to... to, to, to argue with HaKadosh Baruch Hu for seven days not to go and not to be the, the one to lead the Jewish people out of Egypt, how come when HaKadosh Baruch Hu goes, goes and tells Moshe Rabbeinu, hey, I need you to come up to Har Sinai and you're going to come up to Shemaim, you're going to come to heaven and you're going to receive the Torah. There's no arguments. Moshe has not a single argument. What happened to Aaron's feelings? What happened to all the humility? You should have been like, you should give our own. You should give the other people. They're more greater than me. There was no argument whatsoever. This is an amazing question. And when I read this, when I learned this, I was like, wait a minute. Why didn't I ever think about this? This is so unbelievable. So the answer is, is that the Medrash is the answer. The Medrash that we started off with, that Moshe Rabbeinu went and he learned the lesson that HaKadosh Baruch Hu was giving from Mar Sinai. Moshe Rabbeinu saw, I said, wait a minute. HaKadosh Baruch Hu God is giving the Torah to the Jewish people. He's give, this is the purpose of creation, right? He's giving the Torah to the Jewish people. Which mountain did he use? He didn't, he used the most unassuming, smallest, in, you know, insignificant mountain, insignificant. So he was thinking, he was like, Moshe Rabbeinu was like, obviously HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants to go and prove a point over here. And he's looking for the most insignificant. If he's looking for the most insignificant, then I guess I'm the one. Like, just like Harsinai was insignificant, so Moshe Rabbeinu, in his humility, says, I too am also insignificant. So if so, then then I too should also be, be able to go and receive the Torah. So meaning that his humility was what brought him to be able to not argue or not 
complain or not not to go against what Hakadosh Baruch Hu, obviously not to go against, but not to go and argue like he argued by the burning bush by the snare for seven days because he realized that it's the insignificance that Hakadosh Baruch Hu was looking for. So we see over here the humility of Moshe Rabbeinu, and in fact, it's it's the humility. And the fact of accepting the Torah that are closely linked together. The Torah is compared to water. And we know that water always, we spoke about this many times, right? The water always goes to the lowest level. So to the Torah, if you want to succeed, if you want to excel in Torah, if you want to understand Torah, you have to be humble. You have to work on humility. The modest and the, hum, the humble, that's what the Torah seeks. The arrogant, the Torah runs away from. Now we have to understand, why is humility so important? Why is humility such an essential prerequisite for receiving the Torah? So when we look at Perkei and we look at the general theme of things, we know that there's two different themes in Perkei Number one, very famously and obviously known, it's the character refinement, right? Working on your character traits, becoming a better person. But there's also the aspect of preserving the Mesorah, preserving that which we learn from from from. Hasinai, which we learned from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, through Moshe Rabbeinu, right? The, the, the Torah, the Mesorah. And these, th- these two things may seem, may appear to be two separate things, but really they're two very interconnected things. If a person has a trait of arrogance, if a person has a trait of, of, of gaiva, of pride, it's very difficult to accept things that other people say. Meaning that if we think that we're all-knowing, if we think that we're, we don't have any shortcomings, then what can somebody else say or do that would possibly help us or teach us or, mel- or make us better people? If we think we're the gift, we're God's gift to humanity, then we will never change. We will never grow. We will never even listen to somebody else who has an idea because we think we know better. And whatever they may say, whatever chidushim they may bring out, we say we know better. And I can't tell you how many people I, you know, that, that I've dealt with and I've spoken to and that I discussed Rabbanim and who's your Rav and they didn't have a Rav. Because they didn't feel anybody on this planet Earth alive today is worthy of them, of, of having a rub. Like, I know as much as the other person. What could that person teach me? And, like, it's like mind-boggling. Like, I, I have such a hard time wrapping my head around it. Because, like, what, what does that mean? Right? You know, Chazal tell us that if you want to be smart, you have to learn from everybody. But these people are so wrapped up in their own ego that they feel that this person cannot teach me anything. And if you think that you're better than this person, I can guarantee you that ha- there has come a time where you had this thought, like, what can this person ha- you know, teach me? And I can also guarantee you that every single person can teach you something. You have to sometimes learn, look, and try to figure out the lessons, but everybody has the ability of teaching you something. But if we feel too arrogant, if we're too, we have too much pride thinking that what could this person, then you'll never go and you'll never learn. You'll never listen. You'll be like, wait a minute, I'm going to listen to this rabbi. What is he know better than me? Like I, you know how much I've learned. So that people don't even bother of listening, learning or any, or any, any like connection because they think like, what can this person do? And it all stems from arrogance. So the criteria for receiving the Torah, for receiving the Mesorah, is that you have to be humble. Because if you're not humble, you're never going to learn. You're never going to go and ask somebody. You're never going to go and you're going to hear what somebody else says because you think that you know better. 
And this is the reason that Pirkei Elvis starts with the discussion of the transmission of the Torah. Meaning that the only way that Moshe got the Torah and gave it over to Yeshua. The only way that that transmission worked is that every single one of those, which you'll soon see in Ritz Hashem, had tremendous amount of humility that they had the ability to go and say, wait a minute, I don't know everything. Let me hear, let me learn, let me ask, let me learn, let me grow. That's the only way to grow, to realize that you don't know everything. And this is why it's so important to master the trait of humility. And let me take it a step further. And that is in regards to relationships. If you break it down, if you look at the reason why couples fight, and I want to speak specifically about couples, and you can really branch this out into everything and any relationship. Why do people have disagreements and why do you have to, so sometimes people work wrong things, but majority of the time, and based off of statistics that I just made up right now, I would say that 80% of arguments in relationships stem from pride. Meaning that you don't if you think about something, if you, if, if you like think about any argument that you ever had with your spouse, with any relationship, the, the, the core of it, it, the core of 80%, again, the statistic that I just made up, 80% of it is the pride. Be like, wait a minute, like, how did they do this to me? Meaning that if you work on humility, you don't always think that you're right. Many fights happen, many arguments happen, maybe disagreement because you think you're right and you're not going to back down. But if you stop for a second and you don't always think that you're right, you take that humility pill, then maybe that fight would never have happened. Number two is if you're humble and you're not arrogant, you will always appreciate what you receive, what you have. So you'll always be grateful for what you have. And if you're grateful for what you have and some, and something that you're so grateful for does something that doesn't like match exactly with what you wanted that person to do, chances are if you're super duper grateful, you're not going to get upset at that person. You're not going to get angry at that person because like, you know, like I'm so grateful that they're just with me. And furthermore, step number three is that you don't feel you deserve more. How many problems and relationships come because you feel you deserve better. Do you know what I bring to the table? Do you know what I do for my spouse? Do you know what I do for that? And they do this to me. So we have this certain level of expectancy that we raise our spouse because we feel this is what we deserve. If you're working on humility, this is not going to be an issue. Furthermore, you're always going to be happy with what you have. And even if you do get into a fight, it, it will never escalate into like, you know, like sometimes there's like a tiny little fight, there's a tiny little disagreement, but it escalates so much that it doesn't even become about the fight. It doesn't even become about the issue. It becomes about the principle. Now, there's another word for principle, and that is called ego. That's the other word for principle. When you stop, if I sit in front of a couple, if I sit in front of people and they tell like, no, it's about the principle, all you're telling me, it's not about, it's not about that, it's about my ego. That's literally what you're telling me, that it's all about me and it bothers me. So if we think about this, if we work on humility, 80% of our problems will go away. 80% of our arguments, of our issues will go away. Do we realize the power of humility? Do we realize the power of what this stems from? Not only is this super duper important to go and to receive the Torah of Marcina to understand it, but it's important for our day-to-day lives and our relationships. 
and not only in our relationships, but also in our, you know, like happiness. And I'll take it a step further. You want to know how to work on that? You want to know how to plug this all together? It's all based on the foundation of Imuna. If you believe this is what Akadish Baruch sent, then you know, like, then it's going to be like, why am I going to get angry? Why am I going to get upset? Why the pride will fall to the sidelines. The arrogance will fall to the sidelines. And then you can focus on one thing and you can focus on one thing and being grateful and being happy and being, you know, like in the moments. How many people are not in the moment because you ever, you ever were in the situation where you're speaking to somebody, you're so upset and they're talking, but you're not listening to them. You're thinking about what you're going to respond to them. And you're thinking about like, what am I going to say to this? Meaning you're never in the moment. You're never able to learn. You're never able to go and to accomplish because you're always one step ahead. So one thing to work on coming to Shavuos that's going to help you in receiving the Torah and in your relationship and your happiness is work on the character trait of humility, of anivas, of being humble, of not being so arrogant, not being so prideful. I can guarantee you it's going to change your life. Now, I want to take this a step further with something that Reb Chaim Velazhenar brings down in the Ruach Chaim. There is two psukim in the Torah that the Torah speaks about the person in a double lashon, in a, in, a, in, a, in a double, I guess, vernacular, meaning that they call the person twice by their name. Number one is Avram Avinu in Bereshus in Genesis chapter 22 verse 11. It says, Vayikra love Malach Hashem. The angel of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the angel of God called to Avram when he was about to shakti Yitzhak, Min Hashemayim, Vayim Avram, Avram. And it repeats his name twice. Avram, Avram, Vayim Hineni. Avram responded Hineni. And the second time that it's mentioned is in Shemais chapter 3 verse 4. And that is regarding Moshe Rabbeinu where it says regarding the, the, the sna, the burning bush, who called them within from within the burning bush. It's very interesting. There's the same thing. It says Avram Avram Moshe Moshe Now the Zohar notes that when the Torah speaks about Avram, there is a pause between the two Avrams. There's Avram pause Avram, and then it says Vayamarinini. Moshe Rabbeinu, there's no pause. Moshe, Moshe, v'yaymer hineni. Rabbi Chaim Velazhner explains, and he says, what is the difference between the pause and the not pause? So we know that Moshe Rabbeinu explains Rabbi Chaim Velazhner in Ruach Chaim that he rose to a higher level out of Avram Avinu. Because Moshe Rabbeinu, while, while Avram Avinu in his humility, Avram Avinu says, v'anoichi afar ve'efer. In Bereshus chapter 18 verse 27, Avram says, that he compares himself to dust. I'm Afar Ve'efer. I'm ashes, dust and ashes. In Moshe Rabbeinu, in Shemais chapter 16 verse 8, it's, uh, Moshe Rabbeinu says, Ma. Moshe Rabbeinu says, we're not even dust and ashes, what are we? Meaning that he went even a low, level below du- dust and ashes is something. Moshe Rabbeinu says, what are, we're nothing. We're, we're even below level of a dust and ashes. Meaning the additional level of Moshe Rabbeinu that merited Moshe Rabbeinu that the Torah was given through him. The Gemara tells us and, and the importance of a person's name. And the person's name indicates his purpose and his future. When Adam Arishon named all the animals, he didn't do it just like, oh, you know, you look like a Scot. 
Yeah, we're going to name you Scott. Like, that's going to be, you look like a zebra. So I think we're going to name you zebra. No, every name had its origin and its source on the character trait of the animal and its its purpose of the animal. And the same thing is for human beings. Human beings, your name also gives you your purpose. It tells you a lot about yourself. And that's why, uh, well, we shouldn't, I don't want to get too much into this, but that's why a lot of Kabbalists, they ask you your name and your mother's name and they, oh, they ask a few different things about date of birth and different things like that. But there's a lot that you could tell a person from his name. And we didn't have the time. There's, there's a, there's, there's a very interesting one in the Gemara, uh, you know, regarding a name of a, of a certain innkeeper. But we're not going to get into that. The name has a lot to teach us. Moshe Rabbeinu, so, so let's try to, to just, you know, understand this just before we go forward. Let's just a little bit deeper. The soul, we all know, strives for spirituality. The body strives for physicality. So meaning that you have two, I don't want to say the word powers, but it's not the right word, but bear with me with the word powers. There's two forces, maybe that's a better word, two forces that are kind of like pushing you to polar opposite side, the polar extremes. One of them pushing you to spirituality. Another one is pushing you to uh, physicality. The doubling of the names shows the connection of the spirituality and the physicality. Now, the doubling of Avram Avinu's name, because there was a pause, that means that Avram Avinu reached a phenomenal high level of perfection. But the pause shows us that there were, the body still created a barrier. There was still some sort of barrier in the, from, you know, from that pause. Moshe Rabbeinu, because of his superior level of humility, his body did not act even as a minor barrier. And hence there was no pause when it says Moshe, Moshe explains the, uh, you know, Rechaim Velazhner. So that's why when Akadish Baruch when when God communicated with Moshe Rabbeinu, it was in a clear vision. All the other prophets, right? When we spoke about prophecy and the thirteen principles of faith, so if anybody wants to go into that, go into understand it. I would definitely uh, recommend you to listen to that uh, that at least a prophecy uh, class on that. But Moshe Rabbeinu was able to speak to God. Panim al He was able to speak to God with a clear understanding, a clear understanding of the prophecy. Everybody else saw their visions through an unclear understanding. Moshe Rabbeinu saw it very, very clearly. And the reason for that is that he, there was no separation between the physicality and the spirituality with him. He was able to bridge that connection, bridge that separation, that it was connected, it was, it was singular. And that's why there was no, there was no pause by Moshe Moshe. He reached the, the, the highest level and that was through humility. So we see over here, that Moshe Rabbeinu reached a high level of humility, and that is what gave him the the ability to go and receive the Torah. And the, it's not only Moshe Rabbeinu. If you, we look at the first Mishnah in Perkei Avos, all the people, Moshe Kibbal Torah Messina, Masar Yeshua, everybody in, the, in this lineage all had humility. You should, there's something very interesting. We know that Yehoshua was a very, very humble person. The Targum Yonasan uh, explains that Moshe saw how humble Hoshea, which was what Yehoshua was named before Moshe Rabbeinu gave him the extra yod. Moshe saw how humble Hoshea was and he re- renamed him Yehoshua. 
Now, this comment is very difficult to understand because we know that Moshe Rabbeinu, just to give you a little bit of a background of it, the whole purpose of him adding the name and praying for Yehoshua was that Yehoshua was one of the spies that were going to go and see the land of Eretz Yisrael. And Moshe Rabbeinu wanted to make sure that he was not going to be influenced by the negative reports of the spies. So the question we have to ask is why is a name change dependent on Yehoshua's humility? It was about Moshe Rabbeinu wanted to give him the power to be able to go and withstand what the spies would go and any negative reports. So why did it depend on humility? So the Gemara tells us that if if one wants to avoid the sin of Lashon Hara, of slander, what are they? What should they do? So a Torah scholar, someone who's learned, should immerse himself in Torah studies, and that gives them the protection to avoid the sin of of Lashon Hara. But an unlearned person should humble himself. Humility avoids the sin of Lashon Hara. So Yehoshua, Yehoshua was the quintessential Torah, Torah scholar. He was always sitting and learning. But when Moshe Rabbeinu recognized his humility, his humbleness, he was confident now that Yehoshua would withstand the pressure and of of you know of the spies, and hence that was the reason why he utilized that to go and change his name to from Hosea to Yehoshua. Meaning that we see over here that Yehoshua was also extremely humble. So Moshe Kibbutar Sinai. Sinai, humility. Moshe, humility. Yehoshua, humility. Let's go take it a step further. The Ruach Haim goes on. The Yehoshua Lezakenim. And Yehoshua passed it off over to the Zakenim. The Gemara and Sota tells us that an arrogant man will lose his status. You don't gain anything from being prideful. You don't gain anything from being arrogant. In fact, you will lose something from being arrogant. And the Gemara says that an arrogant man will lose his status. The fact that the elders, literally their names, the Canaan elders, merited to live past the passing of Yehoshua is indicative of their humility, that they were able to last that long. And then it says, it says, most people have Nevi'im, we know that the Shechina only rests on a humble person. As based off of Gemara and Adarim, page uh, 38a. And then it goes and says, And we know that Anshik Nesses Hagadayla, where they, they consisted, the, this is the, the, the men of the great assembly, they consisted of 120 scholars, which many of them were prophets. Again, humility is crucial into becoming a prophet. Shechina is not going to rest, prophecy is not going to rest on somebody who is not, uh, was not humble. We see over here that the, the, the way that the Torah was transmitted was only through the humility. You Humility was the core source of what was driving the force behind it. And it's very interesting. The, the Pasuk in Shemais, chapter 19, verse 2, goes and says that when the Jewish people left, you know, that they were traveling, it says, Vayisu mirafidim, and at the end of the Pasuk goes and says, Vayachanu sham. So the Pasuk starts off Vayisu, meaning that Vayisau, they, they, they traveled as a group. But when they got to Harsinai, they became united. It says, The Jewish nation in singular, meaning the Pasuk starts off that they were traveling, plural, and it ended off in singular that they were neged har, they were, they were, uh, by, uh, Harsinai as a singular form. Rashi goes and explains, Meaning that they were united like one person with one heart. So weird, what happened over here? Like Rav Lau explains that the way that they achieved this unity was through the humility that they learned from Harsinai. So meaning that the way that they achieved the, the achtas was because of humility. 
Meaning a lot of lack of unity. It's such an amazing lesson over here. And in fact, there's so much that we could discuss of, uh, on humility. But the fact that the unity came from humility is all based on the idea of like, why shouldn't I be friends with that person? Why shouldn't I be connected to that person? Do we realize how come there is a lack of unity? Another statistic that I'm about to make up, 80% of that is because of arrogance. Like, I'm going to be friends with that person. Do you know what that person did to me? They stole from me. They hurt me. They insulted me. They did this to me. They're not in the same social status as me. They're not in the same financial status as me. They're not in the same learned status as me. I'm sitting and learning in, you know, Torah and this person, I'm going to connect to this person. So we have all these things that are going again. What is that? That's all based of arrogance. The B'nai Yisrael was able to achieve unity all because of the humility that they learned from Harsinai. Just to understand this, we know that we're in Gullis today. We're in exile today because of Sinas Chinam. You want to know how, what's one of the ways to get out of that? It's Anibas humility. Why are you going to hate a fellow Jew? They're not the way, they don't look the same way as you, they don't dress the same way as you, they don't speak the same way as you, or a, a, a slew of other reasons. But if we have humility, then we love everybody the same. Like what, you know, like you, you know, like there, there's so much to be gained from Anivas. There's so much to be gained from humility. However, there's also misguided humility. And there's something very interesting. We know there's a rule that Torah scholars of, of, let's say the current generation do not argue on the opinions Again, whatever, you know, take, there, there's a lot to discuss about this, but we're going to say this as a generalization uh, thing, that you, we don't argue on the opinions of the Torah scholars of an earlier generation. Because we say the earlier generation had a higher spiritual level, and who are we to argue on someone who was, has a higher spiritual level? But this did not have to be this way. And in fact, when the Jewish people stood, stood at Har Sinai, and they were listening to HaKadosh Baruch Hu give the Asaras Adivras. And then the Jewish people went and they said to Moshe Rabbeinu, we can't, we, we can't hear HaKadosh Baruch Hu. We can't say, you know, HaKadosh Baruch Hu said one commandment, we died, we, you know, resurrected us. We can't do this. They couldn't withstand it. And this is the, the, the divine revelation. They told Moshe Rabbeinu, you go, you get the Torah, you tell it to us. And Moshe was very cl- critical on, on the Jewish people for that. He says, what is your hesitancy? Like, you know, you're supposed to, you should be listening to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And the Gemara goes and says that if the Jewish people would have heard all the commandments directly from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, there would have not have been the evil inclination. They would have been free of the evil inclination. The Torah would have been internally implanted and never been forgotten. The hate of the eagle, the golden calf, the spies, the miraglim, it would have never occurred. The entire course of Jewish history would have been completely altered. So why did our ancestors, when they stood at Harsinai, why were they reluctant to hear the voice of a Kaddish Baruch? Why, didn't, why were they reluctant on that? And one of the reasons is because of something called misguided humility. They didn't, our ancestors didn't consider themselves worthy to be, to, 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 to hear the greatest revelations. And they should have realized that if Moshe Rabbeinu, who was the most humble of all the people on planet Earth, like we said, 
But yet he knew that if HaKadosh Baruch Hu wished to speak to him, he was capable of listening to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Our ancestors should have reasoned that if HaKadosh Baruch Hu is speaking with them directly, they would they were able to receive his word directly. So the decrease in Torah knowledge that occurred through our history is the consequence of the misguided humility, because really we should have been listening to directly to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. But we had this misguided, we didn't think that we were worthy, but if HaKadosh Baruch Hu said, was going to do that, that means that we were worthy, and this is what HaKadosh Baruch Hu wanted. The fact that we butt in our mindset and our opinions is what caused us, and we could have, it was based off humility, what do you mean? Like, we can't go and we can't, uh, you know, like, we're not on the level. But if HaKadosh Baruch Hu was sending it to you, you were on the level. You had the ability to go and you had the ability to, 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 to achieve that, to listen to that, to hear that. And in fact, misguided humility is not new only to, to you know, the, to, to the receiving of the Torah in Har Sinai. Shalom Melech, he forfeited his, his, his Malchus, his, his kingdom, because of misguided humility. The destruction of the second base of Mikdash, the Gemara in Gittin, page 56a, goes and tells us because of misguided humility. So while, you know, we have a lot of negative character trait, and while we have a lot of positive character traits, and of the positive character traits, humility is on top of that list, but there can be misguided humility. And we have to realize and we have to know that if we're going and working ourselves in humility, it has to be in the lens and the eyes and the way of the Torah, the way of our sages. And this is why the, the, the Mishnah in Pirkei Elvis goes and starts off Moshe Kibbutzah It's telling you, yes, the first thing you have to, if you want to achieve success in Torah, Moshe Kibbutzah Misinai, the lesson of humility. However, Super duper important, however. However, you have to realize that meaning there is a lineage, there's a connection over here. You want to work on humility? Don't use your own mindset. Look in the Torah, look in Chazal, look at the Sefar Makadashim and how to work on, on humility. Don't go and go to some psychological, you know, conference and speak to a therapist and how to work on humility. You go and you look in the Torah. You look at what the Torah says and how we're supposed to work on humility. The greatest of ethics is all in the Torah. And the way that we're supposed to be guided is specifically by the Torah because we have to be careful that we don't fall prey into something called the misguided humility. And I'd like to share with you a story about the Megala Mukos and his humility and his achievement. There's a story that I read from Rabbi Eliezer Parkov. So, the Megala Mukos. The Megala Mukos was Rav Nasa Nata Shapira of uh, Krakow. And he was like a genius of the geniuses in the generation of geniuses, right? It was a high level genius. He had a photographic memory. Uh, to, to the extent that there was a certain nobleman that wanted to test him. Everybody said that he's a genius. It's like, you know, like, let me test, uh, you know, this genius. I, uh, remember when I was in, uh, eighth grade. Unfortunately, my Rebbe in eighth grade, he was Nifter. He passed away. Um, but he had a photographic memory. This is in Chaim Berlin. And he had a photographic memory. And, uh, he used to write with like two hands. It was like crazy, but he used to play chess multiple with multiple people blindfolded. And uh, he did this to us one time in class. He was playing blindfold and he says, okay, I'm moving this piece of this. All completely blindfolded. And needless to say, he won, <laughs> he won all the games. Uh, but he, you know, when you deal with geniuses of geniuses, and if you ever had an encounter with a genius, you can begin to relate what a genius really is. 
Rav Nasanata Shapira, the Megala Mukos, was a genius of geniuses in a place full of geniuses. Now, uh, there was a certain uh, nobleman that wanted to test him. So like, okay, like, let's see how much of a genius this person is. And he started, this nobleman started reading the Megala Mukos, a book in French, a language that Rav Nasanata, the, the Megala Mukos, was not versed in. He didn't know French. And this nobleman was reading him a book in a language that the Megalamukos didn't, you know, was not familiar with. And, you know, he was reading and reading and reading. And meanwhile, you know, the Rav was, you know, like dozing off. So, um, the nobleman says, you know, you're dozing off. So, you know, Rav Nasanata, he said, like, no, no, I'm awake. And, uh, the nobleman says, oh yeah, okay. So I just read for you a significant amount in this, you know, French, uh, you know, book. Uh, please uh, repeat back to me. And the Megalamuka started from the very beginning and he repeated everything verbatim, word for word, in a language that he wasn't aware of, wasn't aware of verbatim. And then he ended off with dozing off, you know, like as if, you know, like where the, the nobleman said them to the exact spot. Besides being a genius, the Megalamukos was, has an highest level of humility. The, there's a story that was told, the story was told in, regarding the Bach. He was, a uh, um, uh, Bach was a commentator of the Torah, the Shulchan Aruch, and he was the father-in-law of the Taz. So, during this time, the Bach was the Rav, the Rav of Krakow. And this, the Bach, he saw two men that were walking down the street, and he realized that these two men were, were very great Talmud Chacham, and were great Torah scholars. He saw their face was shown, but behind them, was very interesting. There were four men. They were dressed in rags, and they just like couldn't catch up to the first two men. So the Bach ran to the four men and says, "Who are you?" And first they were silent, and then you know he the Bach realized they were not ordinary people. So he asked the question again. He says, "Who are you?" And these four men says, "We are Gechazi and the three his three sons." And the Bach says, and who are those two people that you're following? And he says, that's Eliyahu Hanavi and his Talmud Elisha. And these four men says, this is our punishment. We constantly have to run after Elisha and we can never catch, catch him. Now, I don't want to get to the whole sin of, you know, Gehazi uh, um, and, and Elisha with regarding taking something that they shouldn't take on, uh, you know, for, for a different time. But the, the punishment was that they always have to go and chase after Elio and Elisha and they can never catch him. And Megalamukos goes and says, so where are they going? Where's, where's, you know, the Elio Hanavi and where's Elisha going? And, um, the, they answered him. He says that they're going to, uh, learn with, uh, Megalamukos, you know, the, you know, Rev Nasanata Shapira. And he says, oh, Interesting. Okay. He goes over to Rav Nasanata Shapira. He goes over to the Megala Mukos and he says, you know, I found out that you're learning with the Navi Eliyahu Hanavi. And I want, and he's sitting over there and he's learning with Eliyahu Hanavi and he's, and the, and the Bach says, why isn't Eliyahu learning with, uh, with me? So, you know, the Megala Mukos, he looked at Eliyahu Hanavi and says, you know, how am I going to answer that? So Eliyahu Hanavi answered that and he says that, you know, you, you as a Rav, you have to have at least a small amount of arrogance. Because otherwise people will walk all over you. And arrogance is necessary in, in necessity in your case. However, I cannot learn with someone who is arrogant. I just can't learn with someone who is arrogant. So from here we learn how much of a level of humility the Megala Mukos had. 
So listen to this story. Let's just tell you a little bit about the Megala Mukos. So the Megala Mukos, besides being a genius, besides having high level of humility, his tefillos also like reached you know the heavens. When he when he did Tikkun Chatzais, his entire heart you know was broken. He told his wife, and who later told her sisters that. Her husband, which is the Megalamukas, ordered that no one should ever enter his study while he's doing, doing Tikkun Chatzais. Because anybody that enters his study while doing Tikkun Chatzais is putting their life in danger. So his wife mentioned this to her sister. Her sister did not take this too seriously. And she told it to her other two sisters. And meanwhile, the Megalamukas, his, his brother-in-laws were also great Tamid Chachamim and this piqued their curiosity. What? Nobody's allowed to enter? Like, why not? So, you know, soon afterwards, the Megalamukas went to go to, uh, you know, uh, go to the mikvah. And while he was out in the mikvah, they hid themselves under his bed in his study. Meaning they hid themselves in his study to see what is so special about what the Megalamukas is doing in Tikkun Chatzais. They saw the Megalamukas come back in and the Rav Nasanata, the Megalamukas went and he started learning. And he started learning until Chatzos. And when it came to Chatzos, he sat on the floor and he started doing, uh, you know, Tikkun Chatzos. And after he finished Tikkun Chatzos, he got up and he learned the rest of the night. In the morning, the, you know, the three brothers were nowhere to be found. So everybody started frantically searching for them. Where, where are we going to find the three, where are the three, three, three brothers? Where are they? How they all disappear the same night? And they were all looking and they could not find them. And finally a servant came in to the Megalamukos is, you know, study and they were cleaning the study. And this servant was sweeping under the bed of the Megalamukos and he saw over there there was three bodies. That were no longer alive. And that was unfortunately the three, you know, brother-in-laws. And when, when, when the Galamukos, Rav Nasanata heard about it, he was so broken. He, like, he followed their coffin. He was in a total state of dejection. He re- and, and everybody asked him, like, what happened? And he refused to explain what happened. And, and like, how did they pass away in the study? All three of them at the same time, something didn't make sense over here. Something was out of the ordinary. But the Megalamukos, he held himself responsible. And after Shiva, he decided that he's going to go into exile. He's going to go into self-inflicted exile to atone for their deaths. So he goes over to his wife and he confided in his wife. And he says, what, what am I to do? He says, when I say Tikkun Chatzais, the, the sound of the songs of the wings of the Holy Chayas, the angels in heaven is heard in the room. And most living creatures are unable to withstand the sound of that song. And he's, and he goes and he says, I am guilty of unintentionally killing my brother-in-laws. And I have to, as an atonement, as an, as a kapara, I have to go into exile to atone for the sin. And he told his wife, he says, he made his wife swear that you will not reveal my whereabouts of where I go. And his wife says, okay, fine, but how long are you going to go? And he says, I have to go until heaven, until Shemayim sends me a sign that my sin has been atoned. And he started and he left. And he started wandering from town to town. He joined the band of beggars and he joined, and he kept his identity a secret and he was moving from town to town. His father-in-law found out that his son-in-law went disappearing. He went over to his daughter and he says, what happened to your husband? Where, where's my son-in-law? And the daughter swore to secrecy. She said, I, you know, I can't say, and, you know, she kept to her oath. And, you know, the, the father-in-law, he didn't have any other options. So he frankly, he wrote letters to all the Rabbanim. 
and all the, in all the neighboring towns, and he sent out a letter describing who the Megalamukas was, how he looked, what you know, his person, everything. And please keep your eyes open. If you do see him, please let me know. Please send him back. The Megalamukas wandered from city to city, from village to village for a very long time. His clothings became worn and torn, and he be- he looked like the rest of the beggars. Meanwhile, the Yom Tov of Sukkot approached, and uh, the beggars, along with the Megalamukos, arrived in the city of Lublin. And the Megalamukos, you know, he started worrying. He, he was a beggar. He was collecting. He was traveling from town to town. How was he going to get a little of an esrog? How was he going to get a, a sukkah? He needed to do these mitzvahs. How was he going to be able to fulfill these mitzvahs? So he entered the shul on Erev Yom Tov, and he went over to the Gabbai. And he says, maybe you can set me up with somebody that I could sit and eat by his sukkah. And the Gabbai was very good at summing people up. You know, good, you know, you know how to read people. And he looks at this person and he looked like a beggar, but there was something different about him. He had a certain dignity. He had a certain like respect. He had a certain, a certain, a certain high level to him that he couldn't figure out. And he realized he must, this is not a regular beggar. So he went and he set him up with one of the wealthiest people in town. And he says, you're going to go and you're going to eat in this person's sukkah. And he set him up and uh, this wealthy man brings this, what appears to be a beggar, into the sukkah. And the second that the, the Magala Mukos walks into the sukkah, he started breaking out singing an ulu shpizen, in a happiness in the simchas of sukkahs. And he was, you know, like he was in a different level. And the owner, the wealthy, you know, person over here realized this is not a regular, this is not a regular guest. This is not a regular beggar. And after the suda, after the meal, the Mikalamukas asks his guest, says, do you mind if I sit and I learn over here in the sukkah for the night? And the guest says, you know, not at all. Please go ahead. And, and he realized, the guest said, he says, if someone's sitting here learning all night, why do I have to take out the silver? And all my expensive utensils, you know, the proper way to, to go through the Yom Tov and Sukkah. So when you go to the Sukkah, you're supposed to bring out all your fancy utensils. And he brought out all his fancy utensils, not the cheap stuff. And he says, you know what? If we have someone here over here, he's going to watch it. I don't need to bring it back in. So the Megalamukos sat over here. The utensils were on one side. He was sitting and learning on the other side. And he became so engrossed in his learning. And in the middle of the night, he didn't hear any noise, but you know, someone peeked into the sukkah and he saw that there was someone very engrossed learning. But he looked at the other side and he saw a, a large amount of silver utensils. And this person, this thief, realized that he has an opportunity over here. And he slowly crept in and he slowly started stealing the utensils and he ran out. And then Magala Mukas was so, in, you know, like focused on his learning that he didn't even notice at the, you know, the person coming and stealing the, the utensils. When the morning came and the owner came into the sukkah, he says, where are my utensils? And the Galamukha says, I don't know. I, I didn't see anybody come in. I, you know, I was here all night. I, I don't know. And the owner was like, wait a minute. There's like, there's got to be some sort of conspiracy over here. It's like, you are here all night. You are, uh, you know, like 
you probably took it. That's what the, this wealthy person, you know, came to the conclusion. She says, where's my utensils? And the guy says, the, the, the McAllister says, I, I don't know. I, I didn't take it. I bet you took it. I didn't take it. You took it. I didn't take it. I, I really, I honestly, and going back and forth, back and forth until the neighbors started coming in. And they had this wealthy benefactor, this philanthropist saying that this, you know, beggar, he stole all my utensils. They all, you know, went on his side. He says, you stole. And they started beating him up and they started hitting the, the McAllister until they decided they're going to throw the McAllister into the prison, into the jail over there. And they locked the Megalamukos into prison over here. And the Megalamukos is looking and he sees all the people are walking to the, with their Lulavim and Estragim to, you know, Shul. And then Megalamukos is going and he says, Ranasa, Nasa, Nata Shapira says, please do me a favor. Let me just make a bracha with the Lulav. Let me make a bracha with the Estrag. And they were like, you want, you want this? You want the law of an Ezra? Return the stolen items and then you'll get it back. And he says, I didn't take it. And he says, no, you took it. And they kept on walking. And this scene kept on repeating itself. Until finally they brought the Rava of Lublin. And he says, maybe you can get a confession out of this beggar who stole all my utensils. And the Rav came into the, the prison cell, you know, where, where Nasanata was locked up. And he says, where is the silver? And the Megalamukos started pouring out his heart. I'm telling you the truth. I didn't touch a silver. I didn't steal it. I was busy learning. I don't know what happened. And the Rav of Lublin looked at Rav Nasanata Shapira. He looked at the Megalamukos and he looked somewhat familiar. And like, he looked different. And the Rav quickly left the cell. He ran back and he looked at a letter that he received from Krakow, a description of a person. And this description fit the man fixed the Megala Mukos. So he quickly runs back and he says, you have to release this man. And they release this man and this rough took this man into the shul and he gave, you know, he surrounded, you know, the people were surrounding him, making sure that he doesn't escape. And the rub was saying, you don't understand who this man is. And after davening, the rub went and took this, the Megala Mukos to his home. He honored this stranger with Kiddush and he gave him to eat. And then he went to study. And then the interrogation began. And the Rav of Lublin gave a letter that he received from the Megalamukas father-in-law, and he says, I want you to read this. And the Megalamukas starts reading it, and he reads a letter from his father-in-law, and he starts turning white. And then the Rav of Lublin looks at, at the Megalamukas and he says, why did you run away from Krakow? Why did you run away? What, what happened? And the Megalamukas told him the entire story. And the Rav goes over to him and he says, you know, it's your duty to ensure that the thieves return the silver to the owner. And the Rav left the cell. He went to, to the wealthy person, to the philanthropist. And he says, you should know that the person that you accused of stealing it, he did not touch your silver. But the real thief, he will return everything by tonight. But you should also know that you have humiliated a great man and you have to make amends. And very interestingly, as night fell, the thieves all of a sudden came overcome with a tremendous fear and they started shaking and they had so much regret of what they stole. They ran back to the, to the, the wealthy person and they returned all of their stolen, stolen items, items. And the shocked owner realized what was happening. He ran over to the, to the Megalamukas from Nasanata and he started profusely apologizing. After Yom Tov, the Megalamukas returned to the Rav. And the Rav told them that he had received a message from Shemayim that the sin that he went into exile for has been forgiven and he could return home. And the Rav, the Lublina Rav, said that not only he's going to go home, he's going to accompany him home. 
And the Lubinorab gave him a change of clothing and he accompanied the Megalamukos to the, to, to the city of, back to the city of Krakow. And the two arrived in Krakow. And unfortunately, when they arrived, they were sadly informed that the Rav of Krakow had just passed away. And the city was looking for a new Rav. And here that we see that all of a sudden the Lublina Rav came in. They said, wow, this is amazing. They go over to the Lublina Rav and he says, now you can be the Rav of Krakow. You could be the Rav of Krakow. The, the Rav, the Lublina Rav says, absolutely not. He's saying, I'm going to be a Rav of Krakow. You have such a Talmud Chacham like the Megala Mukos over here. I cannot accept this position. And who became the new Rav of the town? That was none other than the Megala Mukos became the new Rav of Krakow. And we could see how HaKadosh Baruch Hu orchestrated the events over here. You know, when we think we work on humility, we think we will get nowhere in life. People will walk over us. People will trample us. We won't get anywhere in life. But one lesson, out of the many lessons that we can learn from this story of the Megala Amukos, that if you work on humility, not only you're not going to not get anywhere in life, you're going to get to the highest places because of life. So we think that humility will get us nowhere in life. Humility is what's going to get you into places in life. The humility is what's going to make you have the greatest achievements in your life. And again, I can't emphasize on how important it is when we're coming to Shavuos to work on humility, to work on ourselves. It will help our relationships. It will help our spouses. It will help us not get, be angry. It will help us be happier. It will help us de-escalate so many situations. There is so much to speak about humility, but at least to touch upon it as we enter to, towards very close to the holiday of Shavuos, the one thing that we could focus on, that we could work on, is the character trait and working on humility. And with that, we will open up to any questions. Okay. Are there any Sfarim? slash people that can tell you your essence based on your name and your birthday? Yes, there are. Um, in English, I believe there's one, I believe Ramatasyahu Glazerson has something on a name in, uh, gives you a lot of information about a name, not all the names, many names. Uh, I'm going from memory, so don't quote me on this, but I believe it's called What's in a Name? By Ramatasyal Glazeson. That's the only safer I know in English that has any information on names and that gives you the details on it. But people, yes, there are people that do can tell you a lot about your name and your birthday, but most of those people that know what they're doing do not want their, their, uh, and names mentioned. Uh, can you please give a few practical ideas on how to work on humility? Okay. So it happens to be that, that humility would be one of the things that I wanted to work on on the series of character building. But, um, the working on humility, and, and I'll tell you, I'll give you just to show you how important it is. If you open up almost any muster safer, it speaks about humility. Anything. So the simple answer that I could give you is take any muster safer, open it up, and it touches humility one way or another, or it has a whole section on, on, uh, you know, on humility. To go through different things, you know, to work on humility is, uh, quite some, it's, it's a quite an extensive, uh, work. And Amir Hashem, I do want to deal, delve more into it. Maybe we'll delve more into it in the series of Pirkei Elvis. Maybe we'll wait till the, we deal the series of Midos, of character traits. But just a few ideas on humility is realizing that 
you are not God's gift to humanity. <clears throat> Meaning that a lot of times we think of ourselves as so high and mighty and that causes us to not be able to see anything else. So and I, one of the ways to be able to tap into this in a very roundabout way is gratitude. Like I can't emphasize on how much gratitude is important. Like there's a few there are uh, I guess everybody has something that they're very connected to and very related to. And one thing for me is Hakar Satov, is gratitude. So I can't emphasize enough like how much gratitude the only way that you could be grateful is if you have humility. So gratitude can be a good aspect to work on humility. And basically you feel like you don't, you know, it's not like something that you uh, deserve. You know, humility, the way to work on it is also you can work on it on the opposite extreme and avoiding arrogance, avoiding pride, avoiding getting angry. That all falls under that, that criteria. And there's so much to speak about this. I can go on and on. There's a whole series that we could give on humility and arrogance, but uh, uh, if you want to look at it more, open up any safer on Musar, you'll find something on it, and stay, you know, and also focus on on getting away from pride, arrogance, and uh, you know, character traits of similar to that. Okay, last question: Is the rabbi you spoke about from the Gemara? Oh no, no. So the Megala Mukos did not live in time. Of the, uh, that, that's you know that's a you know a great uh, you know a great question. The Megala Mukos. Um, let me tell you of when when he uh, lived, and I'm actually going to look it up because I don't have that off the top of my head. It, I, it's in the oh, in the late 15. Hundreds to the early 1600s is when the Mikala Mukas did. Meaning that the story of Elisha, you know, that was in time of, of, of before the Mishnah. Elisha, you know, Gechazi, that was in time of the Nevim. This was before the Mishnah. So you're talking about these are, you know, like souls of what we're dealing with. He did not live in time of the Mishnah. He did not live in time of the Gemara. He lived in, you know, in, in the, you know, late uh, 1500s, early 1600s. Oh, we have one more last question. Is humility also linked to Amuna that everything comes from Hashem? 100%. Yes. If you have a high level of Amuna, you're able to achieve humility much, much easier and to a much higher level. Oh, wait, we got one more question that came in. For those of us who have a higher positions, doctors, lawyers, etc., and have people working for us, how can we be in charge and still stay humble? Stay humble. So, um, I have met very powerful people that are, have such a, an amazing level of humility, and I've met very low people that have such a high level of arrogance. Meaning that I've met people that have humility that I'm like, how? And then I've met people that have pride, and I'm like, how? So, you could have a high level position and still be humble. And in fact, a good boss, a good manager, a good director is someone who is humble, who doesn't feel like it's their way or the highway. It is something that the more that you work on humil- humility, the more that you see it. And I can, and I can guarantee you, and you know, that you 
will be able to achieve much more. You'll have more respect from your employees. You'll have more with humility as opposed to pride and arrogance, right? You'll have people that will respect you, that will listen to you, that will follow, follow your guidance if you have humility as opposed to if you have pride and arrogance. So being in charge does not mean that you have to be prideful, that you have to be arrogant, That, you, but rather if you're humble and you treat people the way that they need to be treated. Because if you think about it, the fact that you're the boss and you have people working under you does not make you a better person. It does not make you a higher person. We tend to feel that we're better people because we could tell these people what to do. It doesn't make you a better person. And in fact, it's very possible and very likely that comes the next world, the people that you work for will be higher than you. That's a scary thought because they work on themselves and they work, you know, there's so many aspects that they speak about. Just because HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave you a bracha of parnasa or leadership role or something does not make you better than that person that you're working, that's working for you. And you have to really think about that because if you treat that person with respect and humility, it's going to make a whole lot of difference in the next world when that person is going to be so much higher than you and, you know, like, and you're looking up, you know, to them. Okay. One last question. Is chesed linked to creating a person's Yeshuot salvation to come? Is chesed linked to the salvation? It's a hard question because I don't fully understand the question, but if you're asking if chesed can bring salvation, absolutely. Is chesed linked to a salvation? It could be, but not necessarily, because there's so many different things that could be linked to the salvation. Actually, the more that I think about it, the more the the the, the, the better the I realize the question is. So there's a lot of aspects that we could work on, we can grow on. We don't know what will be our salvation, but chesed is huge, and chesed can definitely be that factor, but not necessarily. All right. Looks like we got to the final question. Thank you all for joining. Until next time, may you have an amazing, successful everything. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.